Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. The Action Research Network of the Americas is pleased to sponsor this podcast and invites you to be part of their seventh annual conference, Co-Creating Knowledge, Empowering Communities, virtually this year with sessions throughout the month of June. Information about the conference can be found at arnawebsite.org conferences. Now back to your hosts. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Today, I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Deborah Schusler, Associate Professor at the Pennsylvania State University and personal methodology mentor for me. It's really great to have a mentor come on and talk about some of these issues of methodology, methods, and action research. So I'm really excited to have her. In her household, she's known as the Deb, and you don't want to mess with her. So welcome, Deb. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So let's get right into it. We had two articles that the team read. One's called Stress and Release Case Studies of Teacher Resilience Following a Mindfulness-Based Intervention, which you did with a, a multidisciplinary team that was published in the American Journal of Education, as well as a article that I was a part of, actually, called Stress and Wellbeing, a Systematic Case Study of Adolescence Experiences in a Mindfulness-Based Program, which was published by the Journal of Child and Family Studies. What was really exciting about these two articles was the use of more creative mixed methodologies and methods in your work and the approaches you took to understanding what it was that you were studying. And as this relates to action research, one of the things that action researchers often struggle with is what counts as rigorous and valid and useful information, and how do we get to that information? As a paradigm, action research talks about participation and inclusivity, and, and there are no specific methods that are required by action research, just particular kinds of values and ways of engaging. So a lot of action researchers often tend towards qualitative methods because we're working with populations that we'll be wanting to speak with and have dialogues with. But when we're looking at things like farming, or we're looking at things like policy changes or school changes, more than just qualitative methods are probably necessary. And so I think in our conversation today, it'd be really great to talk a little bit about how do we come up with, decide, and choose different methodologies for different reasons. And I want to use your articles as a way to talk about that. So in kind of your own words, what is the value in engaging in mixed methods or mixed methodology? First, I feel like I want to just provide some context in that I think that we have done ourselves a disservice as academics in creating these binaries of qualitative and quantitative, and you're in one paradigm or you're in the other. Actually, most work falls more on a continuum and isn't 
necessarily one or the other. I've taught students where they've seen numbers in a study and said, oh, well, there's numbers in it, so it must be quantitative. No, those are just numbers giving the ages of the participants that you can still do that in a qualitative study. So I think there's kind of this unnecessary binary that sometimes we use. And also scholars will tend to pigeonhole themselves. Oh, I'm a trained qualitative researcher. Oh, I'm trained in applied behavior analysis. So I only do quantitative, but single case study. And I think that does a disservice to our understanding of phenomenon. It also does a disservice to how we train graduate students to be scholars. So I just wanted to kind of preface it with saying, I'm a huge fan of mixed methods research, but I also understand that people will tend to have um, better understanding of one or the other. So you asked a question about value. And even though frequently people are trained in one method or another, I think it's important to have an understanding of what different paradigms, what different kinds of methodologies can bring to bear on different questions. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to do mixed methods or work on an interdisciplinary multi-method team, but having an appreciation and seeing where your work fits and maybe fits into a larger picture of different methodological paradigms makes sense. So you brought up the two articles, the stress and well-being article, which was the study that you were a part of, of a program called Learning to Breathe. That was a multi-method interdisciplinary team that was looking to try to understand how adolescents, how a mindfulness-based program impacted them. And the study that I sent to you was a systematic case study following this call from NIH, the National Institute of Health, for end of one studies. And so what they said is, hey, it's great that we see like, you know, outcomes across a whole group of people and we can make generalizations from that. But it's actually really important to understand how different individuals are responding to a health intervention. And so what that study did was it picked out nine individuals who we had a large corpus of data on, both qualitative and quantitative. And we looked specifically at those students to see well, what were some things, how were they impacted across these different measures? How did they describe in their qualitative interviews how they responded to this mindfulness-based program? And we tried to contextualize each of those students. So it was a very small N and actually that paper went through some different journals before somebody agreed that it was okay to have a systematic case study of a small N because a lot of people who think from a quantitative paradigm think in terms of generalization and an N of nine is not a good N in order to generalize. But the idea was not to generalize. The idea was to really look deeply at these nine people. Jumping off of what you were talking about, which is the goal was not to generalize, but the goal was to get some really deep understanding of these specific people and how that might have, you know, what some people might call transferability for other students in similar situations is really important. And I think that's a paradigm that action research really sees as important as well. You know, it's not just 
what are we looking at in terms of broad swaths of the population, but what are we looking at in terms of the actual context? And you mentioned contextualizing this intervention to make sure that we're looking at the students themselves and how these different contextual factors impacted their kind of response to this particular intervention, if you want to call it that. So I think that is really useful because it shows that in my mind, it shows that quantitative work can complement qualitative work to, to show certain outcomes, but you also need the qualitative work to contextualize what those outcomes mean and what the meaning is. And so that's kind of what I got from what you were saying. And I think that's really helpful. Like you said, we do a disservice to kind of bifurcate or, or to create a dichotomy between quantitative and qualitative work. Exactly. And in that study, you know, we still included quantitative data. So we looked at how those students, what their self-report was on a, on a multitude of measures before the intervention, during the intervention, or, you know, right after the intervention, and then at the follow-up. But we looked at them individually rather than aggregating them with the 400-some who were a part of the general trial, the, the randomized control trial. So a, a typical quantitative study would just look at the main outcomes, maybe look at some mediators or moderators. And we looked at the, the quantitative data, but looked at it on an individual basis and looked at it in conjunction with that qualitative data, as you said, to contextualize who these students were. And this is the whole point of the N of one study, why some of those quantitative um, changes took place and the qualitative helped us to understand that. Some students whose outcomes were different than what we had expected and the qualitative data often helped us understand why that had occurred. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And to me, it just seems so borderline obvious that we should be considering context in any study, whether it's mixed methods, quantitative, qualitative, I mean, context is so important. And that was certainly one of my bigger, broader takeaways from reading the article, as was something that you mentioned in the limitations. Something that jumped out to me as I was reading through the article towards the end, you mentioned that a limitation was that, you know, perhaps by not bringing in first, second, and third person data, or that by having more of that, it would have added value to the study. And I, I kind of interpreted that, you know, I'm really deep in the world of action research right now as I write my dissertation and everything. So I was wondering if that's essentially where you were going with that was bringing it, having a more participatory approach or bringing in more collaborators. The study was largely about students. So did that mean bringing in the perspectives of perhaps faculty or parents or friends to, see, to get a more robust and contextual understanding of the study? How do you view collaboration or participation in, in, a, in a study, whether it be mixed methods or not? You hit it right on the head, actually. So to understand a mindfulness-based intervention, and I think this is true not just for this kind of intervention, this could apply to other things as well. To have people self-report, whether it's through you know, quantitative measures or through qualitative measures like interviewing or asking open-ended questions in a Qualtrics survey, we, we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. <laughs> so even when you're working on a mindfulness-based intervention, supposedly building self-awareness, our self-awareness is not very good. So to ask people how they've changed or to ask them um, questions around their emotion regulation, around their sense of efficacy, 
it's hard for them to respond in ways that are as accurate as we would like as researchers. However, if you triangulate self-report with report of close friends, whether it's peers, colleagues, whatever. And if you're talking about students, get teacher report, parent report. So get kind of those second person, third person reporting. That can be a lot more powerful than just having self-report, whether it's self-report that includes both quantitative and qualitative. So I think that can hold true for other types of studies as well, even in action research where you're really interested in the lived experience of the people who are in your study, but you can probably find out a lot more about their lived experience by talking to the people who are in the communities, the nested communities around them, you know, neighborhood, family, peer group, school settings. So yes, that's a limitation of mindfulness-based interventions overall. There aren't a lot that actually include those different people reporting to get that triangulation. A follow-up question then, since this is an action research podcast, make the argument if you believe so that there are studies where that sort of broad perspective should not be included, right? Like when it should just be focused on a single sample or or demographic or subject of study. Because again, like I said earlier, I'm kind of like so in this world of action research, like it's almost hard for me to see when that wouldn't be an appropriate approach to your investigation. But as a methodologist, I'm curious to hear more what you think about that spectrum of participation or collaboration and depending on the type of study, I suppose. So I think I missed part of your question when it would not be appropriate to have that kind of triangulation. Yeah, if triangulation is what you want to refer to it as or just bringing in like a broad spectrum of perspectives to to answer a single question right so in in this article the focus is on students and and then we were talking about how well bringing in the perspective of their friends and and parents and and teachers would just kind of add to that robust contextual understanding so i almost am asking you to like play devil's advocate here and, and talk about the other side of the coin when perhaps that isn't necessary or or preferred in a given study Well, frequently it doesn't happen because of resource constraints, whether it's financial time, you know, that's, that's difficult to do. So you don't see many studies of, of that kind, just because of that restriction. What I think could be really interesting though, is instead of thinking in terms of like single studies, is when you embark on a project and then think about different arms of that one study and that those things work together as a whole. So, you know, maybe one arm of it is, okay, we're only looking at the perspectives of this group of people. And another arm of it could be looking at perspectives of others. And maybe there's another arm where you combine those to say, well, what are the consistencies and inconsistencies, where do these align or misalign? I mean, obviously, you you know, what you do for your methods is driven by your research questions. Um, And there's no one study that kind of completely answers any research question that you have. There's always limitations and there are always more questions that are raised when it's a good study. 
I like looking at it through this lens of like a study has different arms, you know, and they, they are complex moving entities in a sense, right? And yeah, I, I don't think you ever will completely answer a research question, like you said, in a good study will lead to more questions. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of is this idea of collaboration and when it's appropriate to incorporate into a study and, and the extent to which so, right? But yeah, I, I think it makes sense that it depends on the study and the context and given certain resources or resource restraints, you're still looking for that sort of triangulation um, and any analysis. And the more that you can do that, to me, what I hear you saying is that'll contribute to, I guess, having more context, which is important in answering these types of questions. So I want to jump in to ask a question following up on what you were saying, what both of you were saying. So because I think this is a really important question, what makes for rigorous research? I think that's a question that is often asked and because we need to figure out what do our studies mean and how are people going to use them and are they going to be accepted for publication or what kind of publication, all these things. So I'm curious from your perspective and having worked with these interdisciplinary teams who have different opinions about what rigorous research is and looks like, what makes for rigorous research for you? That's a really good question. So obviously there's some parameters within whatever type of design you're using, right? So if you're doing an experimental design, there's a, a certain number that you need to have in each condition or to be adequately powered. I'll let the quantitative people talk about that. Qualitative, there are some guidelines in terms of, well, how many participants do you need for a case study? How many do you need for ethnography? And how long do you need to be in the... But some of those are a little parameters are a little squishy too, because they depend on the context, the specific question, what's already been done. Is this an exploratory study or do we already know some things about this phenomenon? So, yeah. So I think one of the things, especially for qualitative research, which I know you prefaced by saying a lot of action research falls into qualitative. So this would apply to a lot of action research. One of the things that I think doesn't make for a rigorous study is when people are not clear about the methods that they used. So having reviewed a lot of qualitative studies, written my own qualitative studies, one thing that I do notice is people will kind of throw out these terms and assume they've explained what they've done. So if I read another study that says, oh, I analyzed my data using the constant comparative method, and that's their data analysis. Whoa, <laughs> that does not tell me anything about how you analyze that data, how you came up with those themes, how prevalent those themes were. You know, they're depending on what they were doing, like they need to provide some more information and frequently like just some examples. So I think qualitative because so many decisions come from the researcher, it's really incumbent upon the researcher to explain and also justify the decisions that they made. And because some of those parameters are less clear as they are more so in quantitative designs. So I think in that way, I have seen some journal outlets that have allowed more space for qualitative reporting, which I think is fantastic. Because in a quantitative study, you can just say, you know, we had this many people, we were powered adequately, here was our 
the alphas for our measures, and it doesn't take quite as much explanation and justification for the methods, whereas in qualitative it does. So what makes a rigorous study definitely being very clear about the methods that were selected, the steps that went into that, how those decisions were made, why did you stop at 10 people instead of getting a dozen, you know, all those kind of decisions that happened along the way, I think need to be very clear. One of the things that's really important, especially for qualitative, but there are ways to do this in quantitative as, as well, but for qualitative so that it's not just a, a qualitative researcher seeking out the answers that they want to find, I think it's important to build in checks. Obviously we have Lincoln and Guba have provided a means of looking at trustworthiness. But one thing that I see is really underused is the idea of a negative case analysis. So if you have your themes going back through the data to find any instances that are contradictory to those themes and trying to understand those contradictions or if there's a participant who in some ways is an anomaly, they're an outlier. Why is that one person different from so many others in the sample or kind of the general, you know, what others in the sample are doing? So I think having ways of um, checking your own biases, having ways of checking that the findings that you have come up with at different points along the way that you are actually going out and seeking disconfirming data is important. And in quantitative research, it's when they, they try to find the counterfactual. So they've got statistical ways of doing that. So anyway, I think that's one thing that we don't necessarily do very well as qualitative researchers, or we don't report it because we have limited space. So I think that would help to improve the rigor of qualitative research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what I heard you saying too is for qualitative work, one of the things that is really important is the kind of the reflexivity of the researcher so that they make sure that they know why it is they're making the decisions that they're making and engaging with that in terms of the context that they're doing. So when they justify making a decision, it's based on their thoughtful engagement with the people who are a part of the study and their own decision-making process and, and being very transparent about that. Whereas on the quantitative side, like you said, it's a little bit more lockstep. Like the, what's a rigorous study is there's experimental design. The closest you can get to exactly following experimental design or quasi-experimental design as possible, the more rigorous and more trustworthy it is that your findings are going to be. And so it's a very different set of paradigms. And I think it makes for interesting tensions too between the two of them, because as we have discussed with our various interdisciplinary teams, it means that we're thinking about what information is useful and what it means in different ways and how to use it. When we talk about action research, that's really important because action research is all about using information to make decisions and to change things. For the studies that you shared with us, I think that there's a lot of information that's important for teachers who are interested in mindfulness. And I'm curious about what you see as the way in which this kind of research, this mixed method research can be useful for practitioners or for schools or for policy. 
because like you said, it doesn't have to be this way, but oftentimes it is these kind of distinct paradigms. So what are the ways of kind of bridging these paradigms and providing information and evidence for decision-making? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> this is something I don't know that we do well as researchers, actually. Probably the practice piece better than the policy piece. And there are some people who I think have become more adept at learning how to speak to policymakers. But overall, I think in academia, researchers kind of speak to themselves. And that's a shame. <laughs> So I think there's something to be said for trying to publish research that's in different kinds of outlets. So writing policy briefs, whether that's at the state level, national level, or even things that are helpful for local school boards, especially when we're talking about educational issues and educational interventions, writing things that go specifically into practitioner journals, using social media in powerful ways. I think some people are much better at that than others. You know, sending things in outlets that aren't necessarily our comfortable outlets, but that do get the work out there to people who could actually use it. When I say this, I include myself in this group. There is improvement to be made. And I include myself in that. When if I jump in real quick? As I hear you speaking to this, it's interesting because you're speaking to the to research and based on your question, Joe, as a unilateral flow where it flows from, you know, the academy to some policymaker. But I guess what I'm wondering is, should it be more of a bilateral flow of information where I'm not sure the extent to which this exists or not, where there is communication between scholars and the public sector about the issues that are existing within the realm of policy making, right? And making sure that when we are focusing on certain studies, it's driven by the fact that there is a gap in knowledge or information as it relates to informing policy and that we're getting off to the right start by asking the right questions and getting the information that, that is gonna be valuable to contribute back to policy making. And if that dialogue doesn't exist, Regardless of the method, I'm not sure how research is going to influence policy if there's a disconnect between what's important. So to me, it kind of starts with that dialogue between scholars and, well, I guess, policymakers, and then perhaps even coming together, you know, to, to plan a study. But I'm curious, what, what do you think about that? I, I think you're exactly right, Adam, and that's an excellent point. It can't be, oh, a researcher studying what they find interesting. And then here, you guys take this up now, whether it's a practitioner or a group of policymakers. I think it needs to flow exactly like you said, both from practitioners and from policymakers. You know, some of the questions can come from there. And I think some folks do that in, if they have research practitioner partnerships. Sometimes that occurs more readily where, you know, academics who are not just for the purpose of a study, but who have a part of true partnership with schools, with districts, community organizations where, you know, they are in dialogue and they are generating questions based on the needs of the community or the needs of the, the school systems. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. It, it has to be a, a two-way or three-way form of communication between 
practitioners, policymakers, as well as researchers. I think we could do a better job in graduate school with training our grad students to do that. The problem is that many academics, again, I include myself in this group, you know, we haven't necessarily had the training to do that. We don't necessarily have the skills or even kind of the time or the incentives necessarily to do that. So anyway, yeah, I think at multiple places in the system, like we could try to do that more readily and introduce that in a way where research would be more accessible to multiple audiences. Yeah, it's interesting to, to hear you say that. I mean, to me, that's been one of the bigger challenges for me that I've had to grapple with as a grad student was the lack of that, right? The lack of that connection. There was so much valuable research being done, you would think, in the academy, and it didn't seem like it was reaching the community or society around us. Ernest Boyer's Engaged Scholarship was one of the first seminal pieces that I read that maybe like, yeah, this makes sense. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to think about why that disconnect exists. I don't know what those reasons are, but I mean, given that, I think to bring it back to the larger topic at hand, I guess a follow-up question, you know, we're, we're kind of identifying a challenge, right? And action research inherently looks at a challenge and then, you know, is a method, methodology in which you work together with people who are involved in that challenge to therefore address it. What do you think, when is action research then appropriate to consider instead of a more traditional qualitative study? I think when you have participants who want to participate, (laughs) you know, like they don't just want to be kind of the objects of the research, they're interested in in participating and impacting change. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to be writing up an article about it, but that they want to have a, a more kind of central role in how that study unfolds and what's done with the research. And I think as you were talking, Adam, I was thinking about how, oh, in action research, yeah, action researchers do a much better job of being inclusive of different audiences because they're part of the work. They're a central part of the study. So we probably in the academy could learn more from folks who are doing action research, participatory action research, because I think it is a lot more inclusive. Another thing I'd say about that too, regarding like, why don't we do this better? I don't think it's incentivized very well in the academy for researchers. People who are writing specifically for practitioner audiences, just it's not looked upon as rigorous as those who are writing more esoteric, you know, technical studies that only researchers are reading. So I, I think that's something that would help to change it is if it was valued and there were more incentives for researchers to do that kind of work. I think that might be changing too. Like I see more talk, more acceptance of action research, participatory action research. I see more classes being offered to graduate students and how to do action research. So I, I, think, I think things are shifting just a bit slowly. 
I want to circle back to that first part of your answer. It really jumped out at me as to when action research is appropriate. And you were kind of like, well, when people want to participate and actually be part of the study. And I'm, I'm so glad you responded in that way because I think I'm starting to back myself into a little bit of a corner where I, I like romanticize this idea that people just want to do that. And I don't think you can make that assumption. And I think you really have to be aware and keen to what's going on around you and that who really is being affected by a given challenge, you know? And like, what is that initial dialogue where it just is this sort of organic flow into an action research study? I think it should be organic like that, right? I don't think it can really start just as, all right, everybody, let's huddle up. We're gonna do an action research together. Everybody put your hands in, ready? Who's in, go, go, go team. You know, I, I think it has to be a more organic process. And it's funny because I got this question just last week while I was doing my proposal defense. Why did I choose action research instead of a more traditional qualitative study? And my initial response was to go into like, you know, how it would be irresponsible for me to take on a study like this on my own and the, how important participation is. And that's true. But then I had a second to think about it. And I realized that I had actually been in this quote unquote action research cycle for about 10 years, right? It's just been like the nature of what I've been doing in the field. And now I'm just putting this sort of like formal identity around it, right? And I'm presenting it to you all to my, as my committee. But I guess my point is for, for me, you know, for those that are perhaps being called towards action research, ask yourself if perhaps that's even something that you've already been doing unbeknownst to yourself, right? This, this process of working with others and collaborating and having open dialogue, because I think a lot of people that are considering action research, they might already be in the realm of social change or in, in whatever form that might take. And how are you just sort of formalizing that? And that's been my experience. And I was just glad to hear you say that because since it has been all that I've known as a professional over the last 10 years, to me, it's like so easy to just throw around these terms like, oh yeah, everybody wants to participate and collaborate and you know, all the jargon, perhaps that's just not, <laughs> it's not as simple as that. Yeah. Well, I think you hit on something really important. Like you, it sounds like you've had ongoing relationships for years and that's really important for the kind of work that you're doing because you probably need that kind of background knowledge and those bonds and the trust that you have not just even with the people in your study, but with the community as a whole in order to be able to do the kind of work that you're doing. What you're doing is a longer process. You've been establishing the foundation to be able to do this work for a long time. Yeah, it really points to some of the differences in these different paradigms of research, right? So how for some researchers, it's really important to have distance from the community that you're working with. For some, it's really important to be embedded and have that dialogue and that trust and that ongoing communication. And I think this flows very nicely from the conversation and how important it is to talk about some of these things, which is the role of bias and how does bias get addressed in qualitative research? How do we deal with bias in our findings with action research and qualitative research? How do you address bias in qualitative research? And in terms of action research, how does that relate? There's a little bit of a tension between kind of the, the proper distance or not the distance or how do you be embedded and, and bias? And then does that also bias different things? You know, how does bias work in these situations? So I think bias is always something to be aware of as a qualitative researcher. And 
I don't know that you necessarily are getting rid of bias, but you're acknowledging where bias may be impacting the work that you're doing. So as I was saying before, I think one underused technique for qualitative researchers is to seek out disconfirming data, to look for the negative case analysis, to make sure that you're not just imposing your own interpretation, what you want the data to say, to look at it literally with devil's advocate eyes. So you're trying to find evidence that goes against the things that you think you have found. I see more qualitative research that is reporting on coding reliability. So having multiple coders, not necessarily for all of the data, but for a portion of the data, that can be helpful. Being upfront about a code book, having not necessarily in the study because of limited space, but providing a code book is supplementary material for the online you know, version of an article. I've seen folks who have done that. That's a way to kind of be upfront about just how things were actually coded, what those codes mean, what examples are for the different codes. I've seen people who will be upfront about their own positionality. And so where you think you might kind of have a certain lens that is impacting how you're viewing the data, being upfront about that when you write up the study, that can be useful. I think there are a lot of ways to try to present the data and findings as accurately as possible, knowing that we are all human beings with subjectivity. So like I said before, it's not getting rid of bias necessarily because I, I don't know that that's even possible. I'm sure people would disagree with me on this, but I don't think that you can. But keeping it in check, trying to be aware of where that may be impacting the accuracy of what you're presenting, I think is what's important. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. It's just great talking with you about this. You know, this is the first time that we've had a guest Deb, that isn't like in hardcore in the world of action research and just talking to you about methodology from a broader lens, I think is really, really insightful. Um, a lot of what you share with us is like forcing me to check a lot of my own lenses. So I just really appreciate you coming on to nerd out with us, like we sometimes talk about in research methodology. And I hope you'll come back on because I know that I'm going to be sitting here tonight thinking about this conversation. I'm going to have more follow-up questions for you. I really enjoy talking about this. Well, yeah, it's a lot you. of fun. Yeah. Well, great to meet all of you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Good luck with those weekend arm wrestling competitions you've got going on. <laughs> I know I got to do more push-ups. The 14-year-old is getting strong. <laughs> See ya. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast. Thank you.